The reading will be Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, good morning. We're uh, working our way through here in the book of Exodus. In, in the takeaway this morning, I want us to go away with this. Recognizing the finger of God is so vital. For the believer and for the unbeliever. And may we, in recognizing the finger of God, not walk away with hard-hearted disregard. That we not walk away with hard-hearted disregard for the evident finger of God the evident, obvious finger of God. That's what we want to take away from this text this morning. And I'll spend time breaking down the text with uh, first a, a call to remember what's, what's preceded these verses. And we, we have seen in these plagues, these sign judgments of God, uh, the theme of God making himself known to the Egyptians in judgment, and making himself known to his people in redemption. That is to say, God saves his people and smites his enemies. He always has and he always will until the very end. He is revealing here his his sovereignty in a number of ways. In, In one of those ways in which the Lord's sovereignty is being revealed is the timing of these judgments. In the first two smitings, there's a pattern. That is, with water turning to blood and the frogs swarming the land, there was a pattern. And that is that the judgment is threatened, number one. God threatens to judge. And then we see the judgment implemented, number two. And then it's imitated by the Egyptian magicians. And then finally, it's removed by God. He removes the plague. And all the magicians can do, not unlike Satan, is imitate and duplicate. Only God can eliminate the judgment. The magicians are able or have been able to to counterfeit, but not countermand or cancel the curse. Here in the third judgment sign, Pharaoh's magicians are unable 
to imitate and duplicate the sign judgment come from God. Now, in the sign judgment sent by God upon Egypt, we're witnessing here not merely the justice of God, but through it all, we're witnessing God's mercy. Words that entail mercy as he gradually, repeatedly sends words of warning to Pharaoh, who represents Egypt. Words of warning. This is God's mercy. We're witnessing here God's patience, not visiting Egypt with immediate final judgment. He could wipe them all out right now. And that's really what man deserves. That's what we would deserve is just to be wiped out. I deserve to be wiped out. You deserve to be wiped out because God is holy. We're sinners. But in his mercy, he's so long-suffering. So instead of just wiping Egypt out, he sends gradual, repeated, temporal judgment signs designed to reveal that the Lord Yahweh is God and there is no other. Sign judgments designed to invoke repentance. That part of God's sovereignty, okay, that part of his sovereignty that reveals his mercy, providing Egypt here the opportunity to repent before Almighty God, the creator of the universe, to turn back from its obvious rebellion against their creator. Providing Pharaoh the opportunity to acknowledge in repentant reverence Yahweh. The I am that I am. The one true God. And yet over and over we see Pharaoh squandering here an incredible opportunity having been told about the one true God. Hearing his word, he rebels. God sends the judgment, and he begins to whine. And he wants the judgment removed. Rather than asking, notice this, for the removal of judgment, he ought to have asked for the removal of the cause of the judgment. And that is his own hard heart. His hard heart is the cause of the judgment. Yes, God brings forth the judgment, Due to his hard heart. But he wasn't concerned with the heart of the matter, if you will. He only wanted comfort and release from the judgment that God brought upon him. So instead of bowing to the Lord of heaven and earth, he cries out to God through Moses, pleading in the midst of the pressure to relieve the stress. And he does so with empty promises. Remove it, and I'll let the people go. God provides respite in verse 15. Remember the word respite means room. Room, he's under pressure. He finally gets relief, and he reverts back to his same old ways. Such is the case with foxhole religion. Amen? The bullets are flying. And we just cry out, God, stop the bullets, I'll do anything. 
God, stop the stress. Drop the pain. I'll do anything. Everything that mama and papa taught me about Jesus. I'll turn and return to the people of God. Just relieve the stress. The bullets stop flying. It's back to life as usual. For the most part, that's the norm. Now remember in the first two sign judgments, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh and to tell him what's coming. Remember that? Tell him what's coming. I'm going to smite you, Pharaoh. Here's a clear warning. I'm ready to swing. Here's the fist. Here it comes. And it comes. But here now, there is no prior warning. In this third judgment sign, there's no warning. Moses and Aaron are told to carry it out without warning. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. There were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, as we saw last time, Pharaoh repented with a repentance that wasn't true repentance. There's two kinds of repentance. A worldly kind of repentance, a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief, which leads to destruction. And there's godly sorrow, godly grief that leads to true repentance, right? The end result of which is salvation. It's proof. It's proof that the repentance is real. So in response to these false empty words, these empty vows, God visits him with a third sign without warning. Revealing for us God's sovereignty again on display, his sovereignty over land as well as water, along with frogs that come from those waters. God's sovereign over everything. Now, the extent of this plague is vast. This third judgment sign affecting here every man and beast. The source of the sign judgment is dust of the earth. God uses dust of the earth. From out of the dust they came. Amazing. Now, it's also likely what's being spoken about here uh, is, is the number of these insects. Think about this. We read the phrase, dust of the earth, in the book of Genesis, and that's used to describe something that is countless. In Genesis 13, verse 16, God told Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. He said the same thing to Jacob in Genesis 28, a phrase that means innumerable. So here you have innumerable gnats or some kind of flying insect of some sort all over Egypt. Boom, from out of the dust. From out of the dust, they're like the dust. On every man and beast. Now, some suggest that these gnats as a species are so small that they're almost invisible to the eye. You ever been bugged by one of those bugs? I'm in my backyard the other day, reading, writing, and there's some bug that wants to enter my ear. (laughs) One ear, you bat him away. I can't see this thing. He he tries for the other ear, goes back to the other ear, and I get frustrated, and I have to go inside from my own backyard. It was momentary madness. And that was one 
unseen bug. I read of a missionary who, who served in Peru at the Amazon River. And he tells of swarms of mosquitoes whose sound was like the landing of a large aircraft. They would just cover your body and you'd go into the Amazon and you know what's in the Amazon. To relieve yourself from this infestation. Swarms, he writes, that would literally drive some people mad, surrounded, covered by them. I think that's a fine image of what's going on here. These insects are of the dust of the earth. And I'm a wimp who can't even handle one. So what are we witnessing here? A progressive intensification of God's sign judgments against Pharaoh, against Egypt. So as they come, they get more and more serious, more and more intense. There again, we see God's mercy. We see his mercy in his warnings. Heed not his mercy. is to receive his judgment. So the Lord, we see, uses anything he wants. This is God Almighty, Yahweh, Creator. He uses anything he wants to smite the Egyptians. Water, he's used that. Frogs, he's used them. Dust, he's used that. Gnats, he's used them. And they came from the dust. That's what's going on. Verse 18. The magicians... Tried by their secret arts, there's brilliance again on display, their secret arts to produce gnats. But they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. So the work of their dark arts fail at this point. Now, by the way, we we don't see these magicians attempt to compete with Moses again after this. But we're not told that they never attempted again. What we do read, whatever the case, their final defeat is actually announced in chapter 9, verse 11, with, with the judgment sign of boils, where we read, the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. They were covered. They couldn't even get up. So next now, we read this interesting phrase, from the magicians of Egypt who have served in a manner uh, of their own destruction, you know, mimicking these signs and adding to their own misery. Okay, in verse 19, notice. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is a phrase of admission. That here in this third judgment, they see the finger of God. Now, that, friends, is a figure of speech which recognizes divine creative omnipotence. But, according to commentators Kiel and Dillich, they say this, and I quote, They did not make this acknowledgement for the purpose of giving glory to God himself but simply to protect their own honor, that Moses and Aaron might not be thought to be superior to them in virtue of knowledge. 
or ability. Such is human pride. Such is the case of human pride. This is the finger of God. The kingdom of God has descended upon us, even though it's in judgment. We'll just say it's some divine power. Brush it off. Not the God who is divine and all-powerful. So here now, this heathen nation, steeped in idolatry, steeped up to their necks in sorcery, did have Satan's work, his power, parroting, that is, aping, imitating those first miracles that God wrought through Moses and Aaron. Okay, Satan's works, producing signs. Remember, he masquerades, friends, as an angel of light. He does them to deceive people. And beloved, such is the danger of those who are professing Christians, okay, professing Christians who seek after signs, miracles, and wonders. Because they do not realize that Satan is able to mimic in appearance, this is so dangerous in our day, to imitate for his own end. And you know what Satan, Satan's end is within the church? To dilute the truth of God. To water down the scripture by imitating, if you will, the quote-unquote things of God. You with me? The Lord warned us in Matthew 12 after, with regard to following after signs. You remember what he said? For it is a wicked generation that seeks for signs. We live in a day of religious confusion, friends. Where professing people, of all people, are impressed by supposed signs and wonders. People stand up and say that, you know, the Spirit of God supernaturally has taken them over and then they flop on the ground like a fish. Or they stagger around like they're drunk in the Spirit. That's not from God. That's a Spirit, all right, but it's not the Holy Spirit. It's man-made nonsense. John MacArthur was currently, or recently, interviewed and asked the question, what are your concerns for the church in this present hour? The context has to do with the inerrancy of Scripture. And he said this, first of all, on a general level, the church is undiscerning. If so-called Christians had any discernment, I'm afraid that a whole lot of what's going on in the church would have to stop. The inability to discern is the final problem. It's like having spiritual aids. You can, you can die of a thousand diseases because your immune system doesn't function. The church can perish at the hands of a thousand heresies because it can't discern. And the only way you can discern is to have the truth by which everything is measured, and that's the scripture alone. Not signs, not miracles, because it's all made up nonsense. It's mimicry. Unbelievable. So any kind of seeking after so-called signs by way of stimulation, manipulation, or the falsification of Scripture, 
never creates faith. Never does it create faith. It never provides regeneration necessary for saving faith. All it can produce is mere wonder. Oh, wonder. Notice, this third miraculous judgment sign undoubtedly causes wonder for these magicians. Yeah, it's wonderment. But wonder, minus the grace of God, never creates faith. It never creates or causes man to repent and believe, ever. They saw Jesus do signs and they were real. They were real. But Jesus did not give himself to them for he knew what was in them. Unbelief. They never doubted his signs, ever. Pharisees never doubted. They never accused Jesus of not doing miracles, but they did accuse him of doing them by the power of Satan. So, anytime a quote-unquote or a so-called believer seeks after signs, all they will continue to do is seek after signs. That's the extent of their seeking. They're not seeking for wisdom from the word. They're seeking for signs, so they keep seeking for signs. These magicians knew they were dealing with something much more than satanic mimicry. And they say, they conclude, this is the finger of God. Now that phrase, the finger of God, that is an anthropomorphism. That's a figure of speech. And and that is the making use of, of the human physical description of some sort to indicate some truth about God. This is not to suggest that God has a body or God has a finger. Right When we get to chapter 15, we're going to read that with the blast of his nostrils, the waters of the sea were separated. God does not have a big nose with big nostrils. This is an anthropomorphism. It's a way of designating God's supernatural involvement in the events of history. Thus, the finger of God. The finger of God is a phrase, a phrase used to denote... The power of God. The power of the Almighty One. In Exodus 31, 18, when we get there next year, (laughs) maybe, God is described. God is described as writing His law on tablets of stone with His finger. With His finger. When Jesus cast out a demon from a mute man in Luke 11, he was accused of doing it by the power of Satan. But Jesus said this, a house divided cannot stand. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's right. The kingdom of God fell upon them and they did not recognize it as the kingdom. Bottom line. If the work being done can only be explained from coming from God, you had better sit up and you had better take notice because he's drawn near to manifest his sovereign authority. 
Take heed, pay attention. And that goes within the local church where men preach the word of God because that's the finger of God. The kingdom's upon you. What are you going to do when the kingdom comes upon you? Here in his mercy, he reveals his rule. He reveals his reign. And that in itself is incentive to bow and to follow. To acknowledge him. To receive him as who he is. He's Lord of all. He's Lord over all. There's only one response. Bow in humble submission. When answering his skeptics, the unbelieving religious sect of his day, our Lord Jesus Christ said in John 10, 37, look at this. If I am not, okay, get that. If I am not, if I am not, maybe I didn't put this up here. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe my works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, for we are one. That destroys the, doc- the false doctrine of modalism right there. Those who deny the Trinity, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, we are one. Amen? So here, these unbelieving religious Jews in Jesus' day ought to have seen the power of God as being done by the Son of God and seen and noticed and recognized that the kingdom of God was drawing near. Proper response? Bow in humble submission and repentance. That's it. Pharaoh. Let's back up. Pharaoh right here. He ought to have considered the incredible works of God by sending these signs of judgment and not only in sending them, but also removing them. But he did not. He should have acknowledged his sovereign authority, which he actually does later on, but then recants. Again, there's that repentance that wasn't true repentance. He ought to have humbled himself, repenting before God. But what do we see? Verse 19, notice. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This, friends, is a sobering reminder, again, to the words of our Lord in John 3, 3, where he said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born from above, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You might recognize the finger of, the, of God in the kingdom showing up around you, but you can't truly see it for what it is. And without being born again, you'll never enter it. That's what he's saying. It may draw near and you may brush it off as something else, such as, well, it's just a coincidence. So again, hardness here is the tragic ending to this mighty, merciful, sovereign act of God. This is his mercy on display. Perhaps this is going on in your heart today. Okay, perhaps you're here. You've been invited. And if you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and sovereign maker, this is what's going on. You're getting hard. You're already hard. The kingdom's upon you. What's going on here is the finger of God. 
The proclamation of truth is the finger of God. And you've been rejecting Christ. You've been hearing about Christ over and over through the years. You reject him. You play with him. You're getting hard. You see, Pharaoh's issues here, friends, are not polluted waters. His issue is not a mass of frogs or gnats. It was not even the man-made gods and goddesses of Egypt. That's not his main issue. His problem, the, the matter of his problem, was not what was going outside, what was going on outside of him, but what was going on inside of him. That's always where the problem lies. So his greatest dilemma was an increasingly hardened Where as a result, he refuses to honor God as God. And my friends, if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Sovereign Savior, for which he is, he's the only one, your dilemma is inside of you. It's not outside of you. It's inside of you. Outside idols do not create hard hearts. Hard hearts create idols. Listen to G.K. Beale in his book, We Become What We Worship. He writes that the biblical God is the true God and he creates humans essentially to be imaging beings. If they do not reflect God, then they will reflect something else in creation. What we revere, we resemble. And if we revere ourselves, we will attempt to expand our, our own image egotistically which will eventually lead to destruction if the process is not halted. He continues, What you revere, you resemble either for ruin or for restoration. End quote. It's the image of Christ wrought in a sinner by the regenerating work of the Spirit, Spirit that is the only person and work that can restore the image of a fallen human being. Christ alone. This is what's going on in Pharaoh. This is what's going on in the magicians who recognize the finger of God. This is what goes on with anybody who continues to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and does not surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord of all and over all. So Pharaoh here serves as an ever-living illustration For all of us. For all of us. The problem of man is the human heart. The problem of man is his mind. It's the seat and core of his reasoning. That's his problem. And as a result, we disregard the sovereign creator. Sin came into the world, friends, and affected everything, including the human mind and human heart. Everything. Thoughts and affections do not and cannot properly line up. So as image bearers of God, we are not what we're supposed to be. Man can know what's right. Man can naturally know what would honor God, but yet they despise it. In their natural state. And they'll even go so far as to do the exact opposite, calling good evil and evil good. Now, abortion is good. 
Abortion is good to an unregenerate natural man. But to one who's recreated in the image of God knows that it's murder. You're killing the image of God. A human being, you're killing the image of God. Calling good evil and evil good. Listen to Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Here's Paul writing to the church. That's believers of the church of Ephesus. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardness of their heart. There's only one solution to all of this, beloved. One solution. And it is radical, a radical spiritual heart transplant. That's it. A list of rules isn't going to do it. Spiffing yourself up, morally speaking, pulling up your bootstraps, that's not going to do it. You know, rearranging outside stuff in and of itself isn't going to do it. Man-made formulas to become a better you isn't going to do it. Living your best life now isn't going to do it. That's all man-made drivel. Can't do it. We need what God has promised through the work of His Son. His Son came into the world. And He came into the world to provide an eternal destiny to those who will believe. That is our confident hope. Amen? He provides that, having come into the world. And He came in to provide forgiveness, but not merely forgiveness. He came into the world to justify us by grace through faith, but that's not the only reason He came in. He also came in to recreate us from within. Amen? Amen. And I'm super happy about this. <laughs> Amen? Amen? To actually give his people new hearts. So that when they see the finger of God, they rightly recognize the finger of God. It's a world of difference from recognizing the finger of God and rightly recognizing the finger of God. Listen to the way the prophet Ezekiel declared it. He speaks about a coming day after Messiah will accomplish salvation for his people when the new covenant blessing will be worked out in his people. Check this out. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Man has to worship something, amen? He must worship. He's made to worship. When he comes and he sprinkles clean water, he cleanses you from your idols. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the promise of God way back in Ezekiel. A work that Christ would accomplish. That supernatural heart surgery that enables sinners to rightly, properly respond to the one true God. Everything else is sinking sand. To turn from sin. A heart that trusts in Christ. A heart that has joy that is found in the sovereign, saving Lord of grace. This is His work. 
Jesus came to live, to die, and to raise in the place of sinners. Our Lord, he came. And all who come to trust him by faith, he provides renewal within. New hearts. He takes out the heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh so that we can see, so that we can hear God and hear him truthfully. This is the work of God. Rightly recognizing the finger of God. This is God's only way. And therefore, this is man's only hope. So if you're here, you've been invited here. Someone invited you here. You're coming on your own. You're not a believer. You have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been running from him for a month, for a week, for years, whatever. This is the finger of God. Hopefully, his word is being opened up to you. To receive him. And then receive it and apply it according to the same grace. To our thinking that realigns our affections, causing us to truly believe. You're going to see someone be baptized today. Someone who's, who's had this work done in them. They've been given a new heart. Their thinking's changed. They rightly recognize the finger of God. Amen? So they're going to testify to that, that glorious work of God today, by getting in the water and identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, their new creatures in Christ. So if you're here with a stone-cold, unbelieving heart, if you're here with, a, with an apathetic heart or an apathetic attitude towards Jesus, there's no such thing as sitting on the fence. You're in or you're out. So it would be appropriate for you, if that's you, to ask today, to ask the Lord, Lord, might you open my heart? Might you reveal yourself to me inwardly? Because this is the finger of God. So be careful that you don't recognize the finger of God with hard-hearted disregard. Amen? Moving on to the Christian. To us who believe. Christians. Believers. We have the ongoing need right here to have our hearts dealt with by the word of God. Amen? We need this on a regular basis through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of his word. We need this, beloved, because... The sin that we were born with, that once dominated us, that once rules us, causing our hearts to be hardened, that sin, though long, although it no longer reigns, it remains. Right? Yeah, like that gnat that kept trying to get in my ear. That sin no longer reigns, but it remains. Which means that we have to regularly realign our thinking and our emotions by way of his word because his word exposes lies and his word exposes half-truths. So we need this. You know, some Christians, let me tell you this. Some Christians, in order to avoid realignment of their thinking and realignment of their affections, resort to realigning or reorganizing their theology. 
systematizing everything into or under the doctrine of justification by faith. That's what they do. And they turn sanctification into justification. So that any time they hear preaching on imperative application, that is the commands of Scripture, to the believer, they cry foul because they're ill-informed. And they begin to whine. You're mixing law and gospel. Law and gospel. That's a focus on works. Where's the grace? Dude, you're saved. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you where the grace is. Let me help the ill-informed. The grace is in the command, do not be conformed to this world. Be renewed in your thinking. There's your answer. There's the grace. So for the arrogant or the ignorant, they fail to hear Paul's appeal. That was Romans 12, by the way. Let's look at it. Shall we? They fail to hear what Paul's appeal is based on. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, believer, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Okay, an appeal. This is an appeal stressed to reach our thinking, friends, Christians, who've adopted the, you know, law and gospel ideal that any time you're preached to walk a manner worthy of the calling, you start raising your fist and whining. Don't whine. This is the mercy of God. Offered bodies here come from changed minds. Living sacrifice, offered body, changed mind. And notice the prefix here. Notice the prefix for the word form. Trans, transform, means above and beyond the shape and forms of the world which surround you. Be ye transformed. Let's look at it. Be transformed. Metamorpho. Metamorphosis. Transformation. Caterpillar to the butterfly. Present passive imperative. Okay, I'm going to explain this. This is a present passive imperative. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Present tense. Be transformed. Okay, or... Continue yourselves to be transformed. That is a continuous action. Okay? Present tense. Used in the passive voice. Okay? He doesn't say go transform yourselves. Amen? He doesn't say that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that comes through the Word of God. Present tense. Passive voice. But still the verb is an imperative. It's a command. Amen? Believers are not entirely passive. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit because he's given us a new heart. He's given us a new mind. We have his spirit. So he says here, allow yourselves to be being transformed continually. 
testing all things, discerning the will of God. Don't listen to this nonsense out there that you read. Christian preaching should never be imperative, never be commands. Poppycock. Nonsense. This is the mercy of God. If not, if not, let me, let me tell you what my tendency is. My tendency will be to revert back to the same old type, okay, type of hard-heartedness that we see illustrated here in Exodus. This is the finger of God, but my heart is hardened. This is the finger of God, but I refuse to acknowledge it at this moment. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews, Christian friends. Fellow believers, he's addressing. Okay, he's addressing those who are justified by faith. Declared righteous. That's what you are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen to how he instructs those justified by faith. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving what? Heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Is today still called today? Good. Then we exhort one another. That none of you may be what? Hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. The one who comes and mimics. The liar. The deceiver. For we share in Christ. And sin within us. We don't even need the devil for that. Right? The world and the flesh can cause that as well. Okay, Notice, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the ongoing heart work that God does in us, we're engaged in. Can we get this? We're engaged in this because we've been given a new heart, a new spirit. The heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. Our eyes have been opened by the finger of God. And his finger is his word in his glorious Holy Spirit's work within us. So we are therefore enabled, enabled by that spirit, the Holy Spirit, to take care that we do not become hardened. Is this simple? Is this just super simple stuff? You start reading people that, that confuse you about this stuff, go back to the Bible, please. Please. Sin no longer reigns over us, friends. Christian, but it still remains in us. Don't fool yourself. (laughs) Listen to the words as I close with this. Listen to the words from the autobiography of Malcolm Mugridge as told by Ravi Zacharias. Let's talk about remaining sin for a moment. It no longer rules us, but it can deceive us. Are you ready? Working as a journalist in India, Muggeridge left his residence one evening to go on a nearby ri- to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water, across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allurement, allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had fought it off in honor of his wife. 
On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, so he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her. And as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into significance when he compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at this woman. She was a wrinkled woman. Her feet were deformed. She had stumps for fingers. She was toothless with eroded eye sockets, for she was racked with leprosy. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his breath. What a dirty, lecherous woman. But then, the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own wicked heart. May we not recognize the finger of God with hard-hearted disregard. Amen, beloved? Christians, may we take care that none of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've been given new hearts. Christ has come, lived, died, raised in our place, providing us atonement and providing transformation. New hearts, new minds. So to any of you who came in as unbelievers this morning, skeptics, say you're an agnostic, indifferent, merely traditionally religious, you came perhaps because you were invited, perhaps because you're curious, or because circumstances in your life are all messed up, but you're not here by chance. Are you with me? You're not here by chance. Whatever the case, Christ calls sinners to himself, and he's calling you to himself today. He never waits for people who are messed up to go clean themselves up, because if he did, nobody would be saved. And I wouldn't, there'd be an empty pulpit here. You get it? He calls sinners who are messed up to come and put their faith and trust in him. That's the call. There's power in the call. And he transforms you from the inside out. So the local gathering here of this church isn't a place you come once you get your act together. You come by faith, receiving the grace, mercy, and trust, and trusting yourself to Jesus Christ. He cleans you up from the inside out. You must trust and you must believe. You must repent and submit yourself to his sovereign authority and you shall be saved. Amen.